Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 15. In John chapter 15, our text this morning will be verses 1 to 4. This is going to be the passage that contains the seventh of the I Am statements of our Lord Jesus. This is another instance in which he is going to emphasize his deity. But even more so than that, we're going to see a number of other things within this passage. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He is encouraging them. He is trying to prepare them, of course, for the great trial that is ahead. As in a few short hours, he's going to be arrested. He's going to be tried. He's going to be crucified. He is preparing them for uh, the working of the Spirit of God, which he will come in the fullness upon all of them. He's going to teach them. He's going to guide them. Bring back to their remembrance all that Christ has said. He is going to be Christ's presence on earth, as we have read in John chapter 14. There are so many things that Jesus is saying, and it's it's something that we shouldn't miss as we've been bringing it up, is the fact that in a few short hours, Jesus is getting ready to give his life as a ransom for all that the Father has given to him. And it is he that is encouraging the disciples, as very often... When a loved one is getting ready to pass, as we've talked about, we're always at their bedside trying to encourage them or whatever of what uh, wonderful things that they're getting ready to see or experience in Christ. Finally getting to see the one whom they have served, the one who has saved them. But in this instance, this is Jesus whose life is getting ready to end, at least his earthly life. And he is the one who is encouraging his disciples. What he says here in John chapter 15 in these first couple of verses are central to the Christian faith. They are extremely vital. It's extremely important and it's vital for us to understand as best as we can this portion of God's word. Very often these particular verses that are in this text are taken to to emphasize uh, one that you can lose your salvation as well as other things. And it is a difficult passage, no doubt, but this is a passage that we need to give our attention to. Because when, we, when we're first converted, and a number of us have endured this as well, or experienced this, after your conversion, you want to know what's next, what comes thereafter. And depending on the churches that you may have grown up in, usually that next step or whatever doesn't really get expounded very, very often. It's usually the same sermon every Sunday. And after everybody's done, made their profession of faith, it's like, what's next? Well, in this passage, Jesus gives us what's next, what we ought to be doing, how to live the Christian life. And that is an honest question that we all have. How do we live the Christian life? How do we take all the things that we learn, all the doctrine and everything that we emphasize, and how do we now put it into practice? What things are needing to be emphasized? The scripture tells us in a number of places to walk worthy of your calling. How do you do that? What things need to be in place for you to walk worthy of your calling? To live the Christian life in a way that honors the Lord. Where do we start? 
And here Jesus gives us a very simple analogy of that very thing. And this passage teaches us what must occur for the people of God to live a fruit-bearing life. Because that's what comes next is the life you live, the godly life. The Christian living that, that pleases the Lord. But again, it goes back to our Lord commands us often to bear fruit, do good works. How do we develop that? What is the catalyst for the fruit bearing? But in this passage, our Lord, in a simple analogy, is giving us the things that we need to put into place in order to, to do those very things that he commands of us. And we find some very encouraging truths in this passage. Of how intimately involved God is. Of how he initiates our salvation. Of how the spirit changes our hearts. The things that are implied within this portion of God's word that he has already revealed to us. What do we do then? And this is, this is an interesting question because when it comes to our salvation, we are always emphatic on your salvation is not your doing. You don't do anything. To merit your salvation. We recognize that salvation is a work of God. And a work of God alone. He alone is the one who effectually calls us. He alone is the one who regenerates us. He alone is the one who grants us faith. He alone is the one who justifies us. He alone is the one who adopts us. He alone is the one who sanctifies us. He alone is the one who unites us to his son. He alone is the one who, who causes within us. Uh, who preserves us that we may persevere. He alone is the one who's going to glorify us. So when we speak of the things that we ought to be doing or the things that we should be doing in light of our salvation, that brings up questions. Well, what things do we take part in? What do we do? Well, the very first thing that we need to understand before we move into this passage is this is not an instance in which we let go and let God. There is no let go and let God when it comes to progressive sanctification, the growth in Christ. Otherwise, why would there be commands for you to do? And the Spirit must work and, and work out your salvation with fear and trembling and, and the commands that are given. Sanctification is one of those great mysteries of our salvation, of how we cooperate with the Spirit of God and grow in Christ. But this is one of those instances. Now, the initial act of sanctification in which the chains of sin are broken and the dominion of sin is no longer... Uh, over us and we are been we've been set apart we're being declared holy that's all a work of god but then you get into what's called progressive sanctification is that throughout your life you gradually become more and more conformed to the image of christ it's a progressive work as one theologian says it's a progressive work of god and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like christ in our actual lives and it increases throughout our lives that's why we emphasize sanctification. We need to grow in sanctification. We need to grow in Christ. All of this, this language that we use. Because this is what the Spirit of God does on the inside. And we manifest it on the outside. But the very thing that, we, that the Spirit of God uses to, to bring about this change in us is the Word of God. We are commanded to do a number of things. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, which is our reasonable service of worship. Being conformed to the image of Christ. Be imitators of God as beloved children. 
Walk worthy of your calling. Walk worthy of Christ. So many commands that are given in Scripture. How do we do that? Where do we start? And this is where our Lord helps us to understand those very things within this passage right here. So I pray that we would give our attention to God's Word and the things that we want to really emphasize as we work our way through these four verses is to pay close attention to the true vine, the vine dresser, and the responsibility of the branches. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 15, verses 1 to 4. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. Let us give our attention to the Word of God. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for all that it teaches us. When we pray, Father, that the Spirit of God would open our hearts and our minds, that He would teach us, that we would learn from Him, as we cannot understand it unless He teaches us. We are absolutely dependent upon His work in us. So we pray that He would move mightily. We ask, Father, that You would bless the preaching of Your Word and may it accomplish all You desire in us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Again, we have the last of the I am statements that that is given to us here in John chapter 15. As we left off in John chapter 14, as Jesus has spoken once again of the helper that is going to teach them and bring back to their remembrance all that he said as he expresses the peace that only he can give, the peace that Paul says surpasses all understanding. He speaks of that peace being with them. He speaks of them knowing and believing based on the very things that he says happening. And he says to them, get up and let us go from here. So the idea here is, or the thought is, is that they're leaving the upper room and they are now walking within Jerusalem and they are going to be making their way throughout these next chapters over the Brook Kidron into the Garden of Gethsemane. But as they are going, and it's very possible that they are passing by the entrance into the temple, and there at the temple there was, there was a big a vine that was over the entrance, a vine that was overlaid with gold. And this isn't something small, it's something very large as Josephus records that the clusters themselves were as big as a man. And it very could, well, could have been that as they are passing by the entrance of the temple itself, that Jesus then begins this dialogue here, this discourse. As they look up and they see the vine, which the Old Testament Israel was referred to as the vine of the Lord. And then Jesus begins to expound 
this very truth that he is the true vine. He is the fulfillment of everything that Israel should have been. And he says it in such a way that a number of things are emphasized here, especially when it comes to the Christian life. One, he says, I am the true vine. That within the Christian life, we must have Christ as central. You have that emphasis of the centrality of Christ because everything that he says is going to be from him, abiding in him. It's going to be, he's going to be the source of it all. He says it and connects it into another I am statement emphasizing his deity. That he is the God man who gives himself for sinners. He has the preeminence. He is central to it all. He's central to everything that we do. All that we ever hope to be. He's the sum of the gospel. Because of him we are children of God. Because him the wrath of God has been satisfied. The goal of the Christian life is to honor Christ. He is central to it all. And this is important. This goes without saying. At least it should. But at the same time it is something that needs to be emphasized. That the goal of our Christian life is to honor Christ. Because he is central to the Christian life. There is nothing else. He has the preeminence in all things. And that's why any, any teachings and doctrine and any of these amazing things that we are privileged to learn, it all centers on Him. Again, He is central to the Christian life because without Him, we're nothing. We have nothing. He is the sum of the gospel itself. He's the good news. He is the fulfillment of all that God desired of his own people. And because of he being the fulfillment of it all through him, we are privileged to come into the favor of God because he accomplished everything that was needed. And as he goes on to explain some of these things, he's not only central to it all, because all blessing flows from him, all spiritual nourishment flows out of him, from him. And that's important to understand. And this is where we need to understand the centrality of Christ is that it's only in him that you have your peace and you have your joy and you have your happiness and you have your strength and you have your comfort and you have your help. Everything that you need is found in him and in him alone. He is sufficient for it all. He's sufficient for all of our needs. That's why he alone is referring to himself as the true vine. The effectiveness of any ministry that we ever partake in, all of our hope, everything, is found in Him. It's not found in relationships. It's not found in your work. It's not found in your family. It's not found in your hobbies. It's not found in any of those things. Everything that you need for spiritual growth, everything that you need to live a productive and abundant life, is found in Christ. Nothing else. And in the moment that you place something else there, then your growth in Christ is hindered. Because then the implication of you doing this, and if I do this as well, is that he's not sufficient to meet our needs. That we need something other than him in order to get us through life. Or to get us through this circumstance, or this trial, or whatever the case may be. I need something else in order to be fulfilled in life. 
I need something else in order to make me happy. I need something else in order to give me meaning, give me purpose. And the very thing that he's saying and that is taught throughout this passage is, is that he is the sufficient one for all your needs. He is the source of all blessing. Him alone. That's why he's central. That's why he's, he has the preeminence in everything. Because of who he is. Now think of this. He has the sin. He, he has, he's central in everything because of who he is. Think of this. The God man. The one who, who dwells in unapproachable light. Who is the king of kings and the lord of lords. Who is our only sovereign as Paul describes him. The one who is high and lifted up. The one who has the angelic host constantly worshiping him. Day and night is what Isaiah says. This one condescended. Took the form of man. And carried out all that was needed for you and I to come into the favor of his father. He left his throne he left his glory in the sense of he laid aside his divine prerogatives. Emptying himself is the idea, not of his deity. He can't stop being God. He adds humanity to his being. And he doesn't come as a free man. He comes as a servant. Just as what we've talked about. He comes submitting himself to the will of another. Which is his father. And he carries out everything. The perfection of the law. He carries it out. He fulfills it. So that. Through faith in him. His righteousness imputed to us through faith. All of that. Because of who he is. And what he done. He's central to it all. That's why the gospel is all about him. Sometimes we confuse the gospel. Sometimes we think. You know, by asking someone to church or sharing our testimony with somebody, sometimes we think, well, we've shared the gospel with them, and when in fact we haven't. We haven't got to the gospel yet. The gospel isn't inviting people to church. It's not about your testimony. It's about who Christ is and everything that he did. That's the gospel, and it's central to the salvation of all of God's people. That's the message that the Holy Spirit applies to the heart and brings people to faith. That's why he's central. He has the preeminence. He's sufficient for everything that we need. He alone. There should be a complete dependence on our part upon him. Because he is the head. He's the, he's the head of the body. And that every, everything is supplied by him. And so the question then comes. I mean in light of these things. What is it that you yourself. Look to for your joy and your peace. Because these are the things that we need to, to have ourselves confronted with. Because it's so easy to get distracted in other things. I want peace in my life. I want happiness in my life. I want joy. But what is it that you're seeking after in order to attain those things? Again, you take the things of life. Whether it's work, kids, a spouse, a significant other... A relationship. And we, we say things to ourselves. If I only had this. 
I, I would have joy. If I only had this happen in my life, I would have peace and I would have happiness. I would have fulfillment. And we deceive ourselves. Those things, if we seek after them in that kind of a way, thinking that they're the, the, the end all, then we're only going to be left more empty. Because Christ is the one who is sufficient for all those things. If I didn't have this medical problem going on, or if this person hadn't departed from my life, I would be happy. I would have joy. No, you wouldn't. Because if you had those things, and it's very likely, perhaps, and we'll get into this in just a moment of the care of, of the, the vine dresser here, but perhaps those things are not present in your life because you put so much emphasis on those things, thinking that that's what's going to bring you happiness and peace. That's an idol. Christ is the magnificent one who is central to all of our Christian lives. He alone is the sufficient one to bring you everything that you need if you would just look to Him and stop looking at what you don't have and look at the greatest gift that you do have. Nothing compares to Him. That's why you have the, the, the parable of the, the pearl of great price. Man sells everything that he has to go purchase the pearl, to go purchase the field that contains the pearl. That's what it is with Christ. He is the most valuable in all existence because of who he is, because of what he's done, what he provides to us, his people. He is the true vine. He is the fulfillment of all that Israel should have been. He is the true Israel. He is the one who delights the Father. And not only does he refer to himself as the true vine, but he says this, And my Father is the vine dresser. And here's, here, this, is, this is something to take into account. He does refer to himself as the true vine. He speaks very briefly of his father, but then the things that he says thereafter are the very things that the father does. The father is greatly emphasized throughout this, this portion of God's word. He's identified as the vine dresser. He's the owner of the vineyard and the analogy that's being used. He alone is the one who is re responsible for its care and its nurture and its productivity. One writer says this, he does not allot to others the task of caring for the vine and its branches. And this assures us of the widest, most tender, and most faithful care of it. And that's important to recognize. That's important for you to understand. Especially in light of it being Father's Day. You know, oftentimes, it's the father that, that always carries that, that idea of him being so vengeful and so wrathful. And, and that's why Christ comes along and we have this tenderness in Christ and all of this. And that's not true. That's not true at all. And in fact, as we've talked about before as well, when you get down to everything that's going to happen, it's the wrath of the Son that everyone who is the unbelieving will endure. 
And what Jesus begins to say to us, to say to his disciples here, and then to say to us who are this far out even then in, in reading this, it's still true today. That it is the tender care of the Father which produces a greater growth in us. He is the one who nurtures our spiritual growth. He is the one who protects us, who makes us the objects of his great love. And through his son, who is the true vine, we're the branches. Through his son, he does cultivate it in such a way that it produces good fruit, true fruit. This wasn't always so. And this is something keep in mind too as Jesus is using this analogy again Israel was referred to as a vineyard but it only produced bad fruit in Isaiah chapter 5 verses 1 to 7 and again not only does it emphasize the failure of Israel in the Old Testament to produce good fruit, but it also does explain to us even further the things that God does in his care. Chapter 5 of Isaiah, beginning verse 1. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it. And he also hewn out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my, to my vineyard. I will remove its hedges and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. He says similar language in Psalm 80. In Psalm 80, beginning of verse 7, the scripture says, O God of hosts, restore us and cause your faith to shine, your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. You removed a vine from Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it, you cleared the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with, it, with its shadow and the cedars of God with its bows. It was sending out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why have you broken down its hedges so that all who pass that way pick its fruit? A boar from the forest eats it, eats it away and whatever moves in the field feeds on it. O God of hosts, turn again now we beseech you. Look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine. Even the shoot which your right hand has planted and on the Son whom you have strengthened for yourself. Israel was referred to as 
a vineyard as the vine. They failed to produce the good fruit that the Lord had required. And so you have the fulfillment of what was required in them being fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And those that are in Christ, who are part of this vineyard, who are, who are attached and connected to the true vine, the Father prunes them, he says. Which is another translation may say cleanses. He does so in order that it would produce greater fruit, more fruit, of which the Old Testament nation could not do. Only then, back then, he received the rotten fruit, but through his son he receives the choicest fruit, as he is the fulfillment of Israel. And in his care he prunes the branches that they would bear more fruit, as I said. He, he, as he prunes it and as he cleanses us, he, he removes the unwanted materials. Because of his intercession, because of his intervention, he ensures more fruit. One says, the logic of the present passage connects the bearing of fruit with believers' need for continued spiritual cleansing and sustained spiritual union with Christ. This cleansing of God enhances the spiritual lives of the people of God. And it's the way in which God does it is what we need to focus in on. How does God prune? How does he, how does he cleanse us? And again, these are things that, that are emphasized you know, throughout the scripture. And the, uh, of course, his, his people here would understand the analogy that he's using. As when we understand the process... He says, the first pruning occurred in the spring when the vines were in the flowering stage. And this involved the removal of growing tips of vigorous shoots that would, that would not grow too rapidly, cutting off a one or two feet from the end of the growing shoots to prevent the entire shoots from being snapped off by the wind. And it would be in the autumn in which they would do the pruning of the cutting off of the unwanted branches and the burning of them. So he's using things that they would understand. But at the same time, as we're looking to see how God cleanses us and how God prunes us, and we see the process of when it's actually done to vineyards, some is cut off, it's cut back in order that it would produce greater fruit. Now, what all's involved in that when the Lord cleanses us and when He prunes us? Well, He does it through the Word of God. As Jesus says here, you are already clean because of the Word which I have spoken to you. We recognize that the word of God is, is sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts the flesh. We see that Jesus emphasizes of his cleansing of the church, that he sanctifies the church by the washing of water with the word. That it's the word of God that is held up as a mirror, that we see all of our blemishes. And then that brings a godly guilt, a godly conviction. That is the way in which God prunes us. He cleanses us. He does it through His Word. So that we may see the things that God desires of us or the things that are against the law of God through the Word of God. That's why the Scripture is so vital to our growth in Christ because the Spirit of God who inspired the Scripture does not work independently of the Word that He inspired. It must be through the Word of God in which the Spirit brings about change in us. To remove sin from our lives. And it's easy. It's easy for us to allow sin to creep in. And then when nothing happens. Because we think God's going to bring down this 
very large hammer on us. And then when nothing happens, then we're like, oh, maybe we can continue on a little bit more. And then when God begins to prune us, then, then he begins to chastise us as sons and daughters. That could be through a variety of ways, through the guilt that we find as we read through the scriptures. It could be because of trials that the Lord sends our way in order to remove that sin or to remove those idols. There is a, a variety of ways, perhaps, that the Lord does cleanse us and the Lord does prune us. These things that are grounded within his very word. That's why the writer of Hebrews says that no chastisement seems to be joyous, but grievous. But afterwards, it yields that peaceable fruit of righteousness. Because through those trials and through that chastisement, through the suffering that we endure, through the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God, God is removing the things that will hinder our growth so that he may nurture us even more to bear greater fruit. We don't see it that way. We think, our, we think too highly of ourselves. And so we end up focusing on our own selves rather than focusing on what God may be doing in our life as a result of whatever's happening in our life. You know, over at, um, at Grand Bible College, we had a professor over there, uh, Mr. Sullivan. And he taught a lot of the counseling courses. He taught the minor prophets. Uh, was just a great teacher, a great professor. And he was... I can't remember which minor prophet we were going through. But he was talking about how the Lord uses trials and chastisement and uses suffering and all of that to further along our sanctification. He said that he was, um, he was a, he's a pastor. He was taking care of his wife. His wife has MS. She can't do for herself. He's constantly having to take care of her. He's constantly trying to counsel those that are in his church. He's doing all that he can, and he feels so stretched. And he's, he's praying to the Lord, and he's saying, Lord, I'm trying to do all these things for you. Why are these things happening? Why can't I have some, some rest? And he said that as he was praying, then perhaps the Spirit of God put this in his mind, that this is all for his sanctification. For his growth in Christ. And so the way then that he began to look at the situation, it changed. And it changed his attitude. It changed his actions. It changed his behavior. It changed all of those things, allowing the Spirit of God to, to bring him to, to himself, as we would understand it. To say, God is the focus, not the things that you're going through. And that's what needs to happen to us through the pruning of the Lord. That... As he is removing sin from our life in the variety of ways, perhaps he's moving people out of our lives that hinder us too. Perhaps he's keeping things from you in order that it doesn't become an idol to you. Who knows? Again, we have that, that idea of if I only had this and only had this and if I had this person or whatever. No. Through those times, through the pruning, through the cleansing, he is demonstrating to you that he is your all in all. So that your dependence is fully and only upon him. Nothing else. And as you come, as you and I both, as we're coming to, to a greater understanding of the word of God, because it's through the word of God that the, that the spirit works in our hearts to change us. He changes our thinking. 
He changes our outlook on things. And when our thinking changes, then our affections are changing. Then our will is changing. And the Spirit of God is the one who is bringing all of this about. You know, it's one thing to... And this is important for us to realize too, especially when we're trying to disciple other people or whatever the case may be. You can try to... You, you can attempt to change someone's behavior and to get them to behave in a certain way. But if you don't change their thinking or you're not aiming at their thinking, then you've really accomplished nothing. You can make a child obey whatever it is. But unless you change the thinking, then they may obey while they have to. But then later on, they'll go do whatever they want to do. That's why... And anything that we're doing, any discipling that we're doing, any, any you know, encouraging that we are doing through, through trials and various things like that. It must be that we confront each other with the truth of God and that we encourage each other with the truth of God. That God is doing something in your life. God is doing these things in order to produce in you greater fruit, greater works, greater love, greater dependence, greater adoration, whatever it is. That... These are the things that we encourage one another with because if in the moment that we can begin to think differently on, on what is happening, then that does change our affections. That does help us to rely more in him to say, yes, Lord, I don't know why these things are happening, but I know that you perform all that is appointed for me. I know that you work all things after the counsel of your will. I know that everything works together for good to those that love you. I know that you are at work. So help me to endure whatever it is that I may please you and honor you. And what happens? Your affections have changed. The outlook on the situation has changed. And the manner in which you now act has changed. Because being confronted with the truth of God and the spirit of God, applying it to the heart. That's why it must be that we encourage each other with the truth of God. And that the word of God is central as well to our growing in Christ. We can try to rationalize things all that we want. But it really comes down to this. Sometimes we may never know the reason why God allows certain things to happen in our life. But the very thing that we can be assured of is that the end result of whatever it is, is going to be for the glory of God. And it's going to be for your good. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5. That we exult in our tribulations. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And, proven, and perseverance proven character. And proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint. The end result of the trial or the chastisement or the suffering or whatever. Is that you would bear more fruit. And you bear more fruit by recognizing and acknowledging the centrality of Christ in your life and the dependence that you have on the Lord. It is because of the very things that we come to know that the Spirit of God uses to affect change in us. That's why the Word of God is vital to our growth in Christ. Now, something to say here. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And he's going to go on to say that if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a, as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and they cast them into the fire and they are burnt. This is one of the favorite passages of those that are in more of the Arminian camp. To say that you can lose your salvation. Because he does say 
every branch in me that does not bear fruit. So, is that what's being taught here? Because that is something we need to go over. We need to have an answer. Is it possible for those that are truly in Christ to be lost? And this is where we compare Scripture with Scripture. This is where that we look to other portions of the Word of God to help us. So, in Matthew chapter 13... Matthew chapter 13, we have the parable of the sower. He begins in verse 3. And he says, And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Jump over to verse 18 as he explains the parable. He says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Now Jesus gives us four types of people there, and out of the four, only one was actually truly converted. This goes right along with what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. This is a familiar passage. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. Now, does this passage, along with the John 15 passage, does it teach that true, genuine believers can lose their salvation? And when we just take a little bit more time in the passage, the answer is no. Jesus tells us about four people, the one who receives the word with joy, and then because of the trials of life, they fall away. Because of the worries of life and the deceitfulness of sin, they fall away. They demonstrate themselves to never have been truly converted. They're nominal Christians. They're professing Christians. That's the same thing with the writer of Hebrews here. In the case of those who have been once been enlightened, and enlightened just means to have, have come to understand the truth of God. 
This tasting of the heavenly gift and the tasting of the word of God. This is a, a temporary experience. That's all. Having a temporary experience is not at all, not at all significant of true faith. They fall away. They apostatize. They demonstrate that they never were. And there's a variety of ways in which that occurs. And it occurs through the pruning process. Think of the things that have to happen. In order for you to be lost. The promise of eternal life. Has to be taken back. Because this is the amazing thing. And even though we use John 3.16 all the time. And we use other passages like that all the time. The promise is for those who believe in the son. Will have eternal life. There is not. They may have eternal life. It's possible that they may have eternal life. They will have eternal life. That's the promise. So. That promise has to be taken back. You have to. The, 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 you, the union that you now have with Christ. Has to be severed. The Holy Spirit has to be taken back. You have to become unsanctified. Placed under the dominion of sin again. You have to become unadopted. You have to become unjustified. Where God had formerly declared you to be just in His sight. On account of the faith that He has granted to you. Now He has to take that, that legal declaration back. And say, nope, now you're guilty again. And then the faith that was granted to you. He has to take back the faith that was granted to you. The ability to believe in Christ. Take back the Holy Spirit of God who initially regenerated you and place you back out in the world. Now, does any of that make sense? No. Not at all. That's why John says they went out from us because they were not really of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained. So these are nominal Christians, professing Christians. The ones who do not bear fruit, but the Lord takes away. They are, they are set out. But for those that are truly in the Son, connected to the true vine, He prunes it, He cleanses it, that they bear more fruit. And He goes on to say, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. It's grounded and founded upon the word of God. And so here then is the responsibility of the branches. You see the Father's loving care, His, his tender care over all that are His, that are in the Son. All the work that he does to bring about such, such bearing of fruit. But the responsibility of the branches, the people of God, Jesus says there to abide in me. That's, that's, that's the main thing. Abide in me. This is an ongoing faith and loving obedience to the Father and the Son. This is a spirit-generated behavior among Christians. This abiding and this remaining is that, that intimate fellowship that we are to continually have with the Lord. This loyalty to Him and His Word. A continually seeking out of the goodness of God. Seeking out more knowledge of Him. Seeking out of what's pleasing to Him. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. There is nothing of spiritual value that any of us can do apart from Christ. 
Nothing. Again, you can change people's behavior all the time. You can give them a gospel that they will accept for the time being, and you can think so many big things of what you're accomplishing for the, for the kingdom, but unless Christ is central to your gospel message, unless Christ is central to everything that you're doing, who you are, you're accomplishing nothing. That's one of the great problems of certain para ministries. Whenever they want to come alongside a church and they want to go out and they want to feed the poor, or they want to go do these things over here. That's all fine and great. But unless Christ is central to the very ministry that you're doing for the poor, you're accomplishing nothing. Because it's not about feeding the poor. It's about getting around those people in order to Present the gospel to them. That's why the gospel must be the focus of it all. Anybody can go out and feed the poor. Anybody can go out and hand out bottles of water. Anybody can do other things for other people. But the thing that distinguishes the Christian from any other is that what is central to the motivation of what they're doing and the very message that they have for these, these folks is the gospel. And that's why Christ needs to be central, connected into the vine. So that what you're trying to do for the kingdom and what you're attempting to do for the glory of Christ, that Christ is the one who gives the increase in it because apart from him, you can do nothing. That's why he says, abide in me. Don't abide in any techniques, anything that brings in numbers. We abide in him. We remain in him. We stay loyal to him. He... Again, is the source of all divine blessing, all the nourishment for the souls, all the change in the hearts that we desire. It's all because of him. So abiding in him is not just coming to church. Abiding in him is not just doing things out of a duty to him, but abiding in him is continually seeking, seeking him out. Seeking to learn more and to grow more in your understanding. As Paul says, I'm seeking to lay hold of that which laid hold of me. And how do we do that? Well, one of the things that we do is we need to give time for prayer. Time for the reading and the studying of scripture. Time for fellowship among each other in which we encourage each other with the truths of God. Do you recognize this? We look at... We look at we look at studying as some big burden to us or something. We look at it as, as we've got to set aside time for this. But do you know that in the time in which you're studying, in the time in which you're reading, in the time in which you are doing your devotions and, and praying and all of that, that this is some very intimate time that you have with the Spirit of God, that you are in intimate communion with Him in the time in which you are studying the Word that He inspired? Do you look at it that way? Sometimes we don't. We look at it as, I have to study for Sunday. I have to study for Wednesday. I have to study for Sunday school. I have to read something today. What am I going to read? Well, I'll just read that and, you know, I've done my duty for the day. Well, I need to pray a little bit, so maybe I'll just set aside a little bit of time to pray. Uh, I pray for this one and I pray for that one, Lord. Be with this one. Help them. Amen. But abiding in Christ and seeing the greatness of Christ 
and delighting in Him is, is it affects such a change in us in that the time that we come to Him in prayer, that we are delighting to come to Him in prayer because we see the magnificence of who He is. In the time in which we open up the Scripture, we're praying that the Spirit of God would affect a change in us. Even if we're preparing for somebody else, if we're preparing to do whatever, that He would affect such a change in us by what He is allowing us to read and to study that, that this is our time of intimate communion with Him. This is the Word that He inspired. A gift from God that He has given to His people and the Spirit of God who inspired. This is the one who dwells in us. And we have that privilege of that intimate communion. As the Spirit of God illuminates His Word in our hearts. You know, as John says, you have an anointing from God. Everybody has the anointing from God. And you have no need for anyone to teach you is what he says. So in the time in which you gather to yourself and you are doing your devotions and your prayer time, this is intimate time with you and the Lord. This is time in which God affects change in you to change your mind and your attitude and your outlook on things and, and your actions. That he is producing in you a greater dependence upon him, a greater delight in him. All of those things that you would bear greater fruit and so abiding in Him is not just coming to church. Abiding in Him is abiding in His Word. The very thing that we neglect. Abiding in His Word. Dear friends, how often do you abide in the Word of God when you're not here? How often are you setting aside the time for intimate communion with God through prayer and through the study of Scripture and looking at it in this way apart from being here? Do you do it out of a duty? Or do you do it out of a delight? That you want the Lord to change you and to shape you and to mold you to be all that He desires. If we're doing these things in any other way, we're accomplishing nothing because we're not abiding in Him. We're not being loyal to Him. Do we not see the great value of Christ in light of everything else in life? He's the greatest. He's the most valuable, the most precious than anything that's offered out there. Do you see that? Do you believe that? If we desire to accomplish great things for the Lord, then the very place that we start is to see the centrality of Christ and the preeminence of Christ and the delight that we have, we should have. And to abide in His Word that we can see our blemishes. We don't like to do that. But we need to see those blemishes that the Spirit of God would affect change in us. We need to look at our trials and our sufferings differently to see that God is doing something in our life, even though we may not understand it. If we can do those things by the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit of God, of course, depending on Him for it all, then, then the, that fruit of righteousness will be even more present in our life and in the things that we do for the glory of Christ. Let us then abide in Him and to always seek after Him.
Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you so much for the gift of salvation. This gift that that we have of knowing you, the great and the mighty God, the one who rules over all the nations, who speaks creation into existence and who sustains it by the word of his power. Through Christ, your son, we have the privilege of having intimate fellowship and communion with you. Thank you for all that he did. Thank you for his life. Thank you for his death. Thank you for his resurrection and his work as our mediator. Thank you for the spirit of God that you have sent to us to bring us to faith and to effect great change in our lives as we abide in Christ. As we look to the word that he inspired for him to teach us and to apply it to our hearts. I pray, Father, that he would do a great work in us. That we would see that the goal of the Christian life is to honor Christ because he's central to it all. That we would look to your word to see what pleases him. And that we would understand it to be something, a small price in light of all that he's done for us. To deny ourselves and to follow him. Do a mighty work in all of us, Father, and help us in our time of weakness. In our time of distress. That you remind us of these, these wonderful truths. Father, be glorified in us. And forgive us where we have failed you. And we thank you that you are that you are the God who has provided for us an advocate. That you're faithful and just to forgive us. And that your mercies are new every morning. To you be the praise, the glory, and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's children said.